this last week or so, we've had the disturbing court case involving whistleblower David McBride. And uh, the court's determination in his matter was one, I think, that has severe implications for whistleblowers in the years to come. I've got on the line Binoy Kampmark. He has written about the whistleblower and has written about the trial. So, good afternoon, Binoy. It's very good being with you. How are you? Fine, thank you very much. So, just tell us what's happened in the last week or so involving David McBride. Yes, so uh, David McBride went, you know, case, his case went to trial finally after a lot of speculation about where this might go, uh, insofar as uh, would, for example, the Attorney General drop the case, which he could have done. Okay, let's just take a step back, though. So the issue was that he released information to the ABC, which the ABC then used in a documentary in 2017 about basically uh, criminal activities by special forces in Afghanistan. Yes, well, David McBride had compiled essentially a list of items that he had as a military lawyer. He had served in the Australian Army um, on uh, on two tours in 2011 and 2013 to Afghanistan. He had um, also, in the course of his time in the Australian military, compiled material connected with the special forces. It should be noted that in the course of his compilation, he wasn't necessarily intentionally wanting to expose the alleged atrocities of Australian service personnel. He was trying to also demonstrate that those in Canberra were estranged and not actually connected in terms of what they knew about what was happening on the ground. So the point is that the material that he did gather um, eventually was, as uh, you pointed out, uh, released to the ABC that became part of what was called the Afghan Files Report, and that was the subject of his prosecution. Okay, so f- following that uh, ABC documentary, there was a, an investigation into the allegations made by someone called Brereton, called the Brereton Inquiry. And so uh, that was the report was by the so-called Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, and that found credible information uh, that the Australian Defence Force Special Forces had committed crimes in Afghanistan. So what David McBride did was point to... Initially, he pointed to to his superiors what was going on, and as as I understand it, never went anywhere. So then he leaked the material to the ABC, and as a result of that, he's being prosecuted. Yes, uh, in the Australian context, a whistleblower uh, within certainly the public service system has actually a very ponderous model um, or system to use, uh, namely the Public Interest Disclosure Act, um, which in this particular case did not actually be of much use to David McBride. Um, He did make internal inquiries, which is one of the prerequisites to making use of the legislation. You need to firstly make an internal disclosure. I mean, it, it's all very good, but it's un, it's very problematic if your superiors have no interest in it. And certainly his concerns were ignored um, and uh, beaten back. So if eventually he did decide that this is something that was worthy of broader discussion. He was essentially told not to disclose anything, and that brings into mind what ultimately became a, an important issue at this trial, which is obeying orders. In this particular case here, obeying an order essentially not 
to disclose material connected with concealing potential war crimes. And that's really what hinges and what hinged on that very troubling now concluded trial that started on Monday and uh, finished up at the end of the week. And then, um, you know, yeah, uh, this is last Monday and uh, ended up in this terrible result where he will be facing probably prison. We're not sure whether he will serve it within carceral conditions or whether he'll be serving it out, but that's the fate that he awaits. Basically, the, the prosecution said that his duty was to his employer, basically, or to the Crown or to the Sovereign, and that it, he did not have the right to go outside of that. So he had to follow orders, basically. Yes, it, it was a very strange case from that perspective because I felt I was in a time warp. Um, the uh, the defence counsel representing uh, McBride, Stephen Hodges, did actually make the point that you could not read an oath given to the sovereign in isolation as being exclusively just to the sovereign, you know, or just to the military or following orders. You have to see it within the context of the 21st century, which has been, shall we say, uh, updated to include that famous what's called the Nuremberg Rules. And uh, for those of your listeners perhaps not familiar, um, of course, Nuremberg in 1945 and 1946 was the German city, which was the site of the famous war crimes trials that was conducted against Nazi war leaders. And it, the International Military Tribunal there came up with this particular idea that you could receive orders... Um, but these orders were never absolute. If a person was given a moral choice or had a moral facility to disobey, they would positively have to disobey if it was going to be, for example, the commission of a war crime. So many of the German war, um, as it were, suspects or those that were accused made the argument, no, I was following uh, the, the directions of the Führer, I was following Hitler's directions, and uh, not doing so meant I was breaking the law. But the point that uh, Odgers was saying here with McBride was that, yes, essentially he had a positive duty in a sense to, yes, he would be breaking the law, but he had a duty in the broader public interest and that the oath was not simply to the military and to follow orders. So the McBride defence was basically that he had really a higher public duty to get this information out. But the, the, one of the problems he faced, as I understand it, is that the court would not allow the documents that he had to be used in his defence. Yes, there were two parts of that. The first part was uh, in terms of uh, the issue that the judge, Justice Mossop, was not sympathetic to the argument that there was this, uh, let's call it for convenience, the Nuremberg defence, uh, which is remarkable. He essentially said that uh, he would be directing the jury. So word go to trial. Um, as in a, a trial by jury, he would be instructing the jury that McBride had an oath that he had taken and this oath was absolute, that he had to follow it. Um, and that's why it went to the Court of Appeal. At least the hope was by his defense team that he, McBride would take it to the Court of Appeal of the ACT. Um, but uh, just Chief Justice McCallum was not sympathetic and said that essentially Justice Mossop had ruled correctly, and there was nothing particularly wrong with it. Um, and that is when the Commonwealth brought in the second clangor, which is what you just said, which is the issue that um, the order was issued by Justice Mossop to remove critical evidence to the defense. Uh, 
So what essentially happened was that McBride not only was deprived of uh, the defense under the notion of a public interest of exposing war crimes, potentially, or discussion about alleged war crimes, he was also deprived of the use of potentially critical documents uh, that would make his case uh, to the jury. So the jury would not be able to refer to these things, and that would probably uh, mean that he would not convince them about his uh, own situation. And that is why his defense team essentially told him, um, okay, you, the options are minimal. Um, let's seek a new indictment, a fresh one, which has lesser charges, and that's that's what happened. And he pleaded guilty to the lesser charges that he was initially charged with. All this happened uh, last week. Yes, that's right. All this happened. So by Friday, uh, David McBride pleaded, pleaded guilty, and we have this very dark situation, essentially, where uh, the whistleblower fraternity and the whistleblower culture, if you like, has been done a very damaging blow. It's all happening as the Attorney General actually today released a review um, on secrecy provisions in the Commonwealth and, uh, you know, rolling back some of these secrecy matters of which McBride fell foul of. There's something like 875 secrecy offences you can commit in Australia um, in the context of disclosing information, and that's currently being reviewed. So it's all very disturbing that that is the case. Uh, he is. He will probably serve some time in prison. We're not sure yet. Uh, the sentencing will happen next in the new year. But uh, we're going to see what happens there. But it's a very dark day if you are, as it were, of the whistleblower inclination. Yeah, so a, a lot of this uh, legislation that's, that came down after 9-11 basically restricted a lot of our civil liberties. Yes, it's astonishing. Australia... Amongst the liberal democracies, Australia is uh, more or less at the forefront of these restrictions. Uh, I know uh, many uh, in the United States claim that the Patriot, the U.S. Patriot Act uh, snuffed out many of the critical liberties associated, say, with the U.S. Constitution. But in Australia, uh, it's, it's even more profound. It's extraordinary the number of things that you can be uh, accused of and inculpated for uh, in terms of disclosing what's called harmful information or inherently harmful information. And it doesn't matter whether it's an opinion, it doesn't matter if it's a view. If you're a public servant and you disclose information deemed secret or if it has a tag of secret or what, and whatever, even if it discloses criminality, conduct and whatnot, there are a whole range of restrictions about this. And this has not helped it's really unhealthy. We have the case of Richard Boyle, who was Australian tax office whistleblower, and he's facing jail too, isn't he? He is, he is. And he tried to also use the same act by um, disclosing these particular um, items of uh, the uh, conduct by the ATO about garnishing accounts and so on um, by suppo supposedly errant taxpayers. And he exposed this, also went to the ABC, uh, became a four-corner special. Um, as a result, he's uh, facing charges. He tried to use the Public Interest Disclosure Act as well, but the judge actually told him that because he had actually gathered evidence to prove his case, he would not be able to claim immunity under for prosecution because he had gathered evidence for his, for his actual um, case, which is extraordinary. Yeah. Because according to the Act, um, sadly, you you um, you're not protected by the protect you know by gathering evidence to make your disclosure. So we've had Richard Boyle, we've had the outrageous case of Bernard Cleary and Witness X, 
and David McBride. We've also had police raids, Australian Federal Police raids, on a journalist and on the ABC. None of this looks good, does it, from a um, civil liberties point of view? No, it looks actually very poor. As a matter of fact, the conditions are actually astonishing. Um, I, I know, for example, that uh, so one of one of the things I do at university is to talk to my students about this, and uh, they're astonished to realise how few protections there are for whistleblowers and people, for example, in the press. The review that has just come out that's been released by um, my Mark Dreyfus is uh, meant to or will try to address elements of it, but the fact is that the protections available... Remember, it's not just whistleblowers, it's also the press. It's the link between them as well, so... In Australia, the the link between them has been punished as well, disclosing to the press and also deterring whistleblowers and also frightening the press, as you point out, in terms of the raids on the ABC and on the, the journalist Annika Smethurst. Yeah. Now, the Attorney General did uh, drop the charges against Bernard Cleary, and he could have against both uh, Richard Boyle and David McBride, but he chose not to. You're right. It was one of those strange things where, and the reasoning is very faulty, um, he made the claim that he uh, could not uh, do so um, except in exceptional circumstances, but he's perfectly entitled to, I would have argued that these were exceptional circumstances, both in Boyle's case and also in McBride's case. Uh, he did so. Um, th- there was, of course, that huge um, outcry about Bernard Colliery and, and the fact that, um, you know, prosecuting a former... Uh, Attorney General of the ACT, but also a person who'd been instrumental in assisting Timor Leste in exposing the predations of the Australian um, side of the dip, you know, diplomatic negotiations for the East Timor or the Timor Gap Treaty. Um, but the fact is, Dreyfus kept saying that uh, he would not avail himself of powers he's given under the Judiciary Act to drop the charges. So he thought evidently that one out of three ain't bad. Yes, yeah, so a well-intentioned uh, would-be whistleblower who wants to expose a government department's wrongdoing risks imprisonment. Yes, it's a very serious uh, case in Australia that in the absence of a whistleblower authority, some countries have it, for example, the Netherlands has it, in the absence of very clear applicable guidelines to protect the whistleblower from disclosing or making what is a legitimate public interest disclosure about uh, wrongdoing and so on. In the absence of all these things, Australian, uh, the, the whistleblower in Australia is very poorly protected. And there were changes that were passed in June this year, um, you know, in terms of establishing, for example, the National Anti-Crime uh, you know, um, Commission and so on, you know, uh, Corruption Commission, rather, but these do not go far enough. They no, do not so there's been small steps. Well, that's not a small step, but otherwise there's been fairly small steps, including some new provisions that will help protect journalists. But overall, for whistleblowers, it's still not worth doing. You're left alone. That's the thing. You're, you're abandoned. Um, you, the onus is on you as the whistleblower to essentially navigate your own risk. And that's the, that's a terrible thing. It was the case in... McBride, it was particularly the case in Boyle as well. Um, there's no, um, as, as I said before, uh, an independent funded uh, authority that will give you guidance as to how to be protected. 
and uh, seeking and using immunity and so on and, and finding it is virtually impossible. So that's, uh, that, that's a terrible state of affairs for the whistleblower. And it must have a terrible toll on David McBride and on anyone else in, this, in his situation. Richard Boyle, Bernard Cleary. Yes, all of them. Um, Cleary has uh, said uh, numerous times that this uh, has essentially ruined his, uh, you know, a, a, a very prosperous career. He was doing well at the time. I think after his uh, you know, legal stint there, he was spending time in England. If I'm not mistaken, it might have been at Oxford for a stint. And, and all of these particular things resulted in uh, the ruin of his business, uh, you know, practice and so on, and his reputation. The, 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 the strange thing is that all these individuals we've spoken about today, they have committed very noble things, but the idea is that they're tittle-tattles. They also have uh, given the game away, and that means that they've been, um, you know, given, uh, they've been sort of tarnished by this very dirty brush as well, and no one will employ them, or they'll save time in prison, or whatever it might be. It's a terrible state of affairs for them. Yes, yeah, so that the the special investigator found that there's well, he said that 36 uh, people should be charged in relation to Afghanistan, but at the moment we've have David McBride facing jail, but no one else. Yes, it's it's one of those great ironies with the whistleblowing context is that the individual who reveals um, material that may disclose war crimes is the one who ends up being punished for revealing that rather than individuals who are actually involved in the commission of those war crimes. I'm reminded about the same thing that was said also of the, uh, the whistleblower from the CIA, John Kiriakou, who revealed that the CIA during the so-called war on terror was uh, involved in waterboarding, and he was the only one of the CIA who was actually convicted uh, for anything connected with abuses, and that was because he had disclosed that CIA agents were engaged in waterboarding. Yeah, there's something very Kafkaesque about all of this, isn't there? There is, there is, and in fact, the whole thing was uh, Kafkaesque in the in so far as Boyd found, uh, sorry, um, McBride, McBride found himself in this weird situation where each step of the way. He met a block. He was told essentially, well, okay, you can't use this defense, but by the way, you can't use that evidence anyway. So uh, it was a shocking state of affairs. It meant that uh, any argument that was made legitimately would be hobbled all the way. Yeah, it's depressing. Um, Benoit, thank you very much. It's a pleasure, and unfortunately bleak, but it's a pleasure talking to you. <laughs>